And good morning or good evening or good afternoon, everyone, anywhere on this rotating globe in something like 193 countries that we reach with the other side of midnight. Welcome to another edition. Well, tonight we are talking to the moon. And as you're going to hear over the next three hours, the moon is talking back. And it's saying some very interesting things. And we have a full complement of crew tonight, the Enterprise of Muamua team, which has shifted into lunar gear tonight because next weekend on the Christmas uh, weekend on the 24th, we'll be broadcasting both to Muamua and the moon, but we will not be on the air. I want to make that very clear. On Christmas night, the 25th, we'll be broadcasting again and we will be on the air, normal time, 10 to uh, uh, midnight mountain, 9 to, uh, what did I say, 10 to midnight? No, 10 to 1 mountain, 9 to midnight Pacific. And then the night following Christmas, on the 26th, we'll be on the air again with further results and analysis, and we will be broadcasting again. Um, I keep getting these squares in all kinds of different media. Something is trying to tell us do this on the square so the perfect uranus saturn lunar square is the night of christmas eve uh, moving through christmas and then the night after christmas and we'll explain all that as we uh, go along we have some remarkable things that we have to report tonight we have live results from our moon bounce experiment now technically Yeah, we bounce signals off the moon. We'll explain what that means. We're not going to be in a position, according to Jimmy Blanchett, who's our uh, chief radio engineer and owner of the radio telescope facility that we have borrowed for this experiment in northern Arizona. We will not be set up to measure the actual echoes from the bounce, which will be incorporated into next weekend's experiment until next weekend. So tonight was just a straight transmission to see if, like with Oumuamua, over the last two weeks, um, on the 4th and then again on the 11th, we got any kind of responses. And we did. And they're so extraordinary that in the third hour, I'm hoping that uh, Maria Wheatley can join us. We have put out a call. You know, it was the wee hours of the morning in uh, Britain when this went down. And suddenly the relevance of her research became very, very important. So we're going to try to get her on the show live. If not, John will describe, John Womack will describe a role she has played in setting up uh, what we're doing for next weekend, for the Christmas weekend, Muamua and Lunar Transmissions. So before we get to all of that, and I introduce all my guests tonight, uh, let me go to the news because there are some newsworthy items which, in fact, are kind of related. First of all, as we do every week that we've done since September, we will lead with La Palma. If you go to item number one, remember how to get there is to simply go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. Click on tonight's banner, which says rather adroitly, tonight we shoot the moon, because that's in fact what we're doing. And uh, we'll explain what we mean by that momentarily. And that will take you to the guest page. You simply scroll down. Well, actually, there's a there's a quicker way. Right under the banner, you'll see uh, guest page 
fast links to items, click on my name. That will take you to my section of radio with pictures. Item number one, the La Palma link. The activity, finally, after several months, this is now December, middle of December. Um, this all began in September. La Palma, after not breaching any uh, activity or volcano lava or lava bombs or eruptions or outgassing or whatever, um, since, well, I think something like 30, 40 years ago, suddenly began erupting this fall in September. And the eruptions have increased. The amount of emissions have increased. The earthquake level has increased. If you go to that link and you scroll down just a little bit, let me let me give you some good news here, okay? Uh, let me do this. Come on, come on, come on. Here we are. Scroll down, and it says... I uh, will get to the new news. Uh, the eruption levels continue at um, uh, high levels with no significant variation. The uh, lava fountaining has changed somewhat, becoming more fluctuating after late last night. Um, um, but it seems that a significant decrease in activity um, has taken place over the last several days. Hopefully this means that the uh, uh, actual uh, level of overall eruption uh, has changed and in fact uh, is decreasing as one would hope because again, worst case scenario, La Palma could be a very bad hair day for everyone. And that seems to companion other geophysical anomalies that are occurring around the world. Now, I have not actually been able to do a um, rigorous um, numerical analysis, but the overall impression, if you go to the web and just type in volcanic activity in Google or some other search engine, general planetary volcanic activity is up by a significant amount. And also, weird meteorological events are up by a very significant amount. If you go to item number two, as you know, a few days ago, there was a major, major tornado storm of several tornadoes simultaneously across the Midwest and the South. Almost 100 people have been killed. No one tonight is now missing. All uh, living and uh, non-living have been accounted for. But this is a record-breaking season. Actually, it's kind of like a postseason. Um killing at least 93 people across five states in a severe late-season outbreak of tornadoes, which touched down Friday evening through Saturday morning of last week, leveling entire blocks and devastating communities over an extraordinary amount of real estate. Um, again, one can ask, is this just chance? Is it coincidence? Or is there something, some kind of underlying physics going on? The, the general political and public perception is that this is due to overall global warming. I want to add something in the mix because there is an un, a kind of an X factor, which is as the background hyperdimensional physics, as we have measured with the Acatron and with some other devices now that we'll talk about this morning, has increased, one can imagine there is increasing energy available for cyclonic or rotating systems. This goes from 
general cyclones, meaning low pressure areas that dump rain in various places, to hurricanes, which are much more organized and much stronger, to tornadoes, which have a uh, scale from one to five. Well, the tornadoes that touched down in Kentucky, for instance, were at the uh, E4 level, which is up near the top, and they caused such extraordinary devastation. And again, this is supposed to be after the season, the normal meteorological season for tornadoes. So we obviously have more than one factor occurring here. And uh, the unknown factor, in my opinion, is the change in the background physics, the hyperdimensional torsion field physics we've talked about, and we're going to talk about again tonight in great detail because it's highly relevant. So obviously people should be keeping an eye on both La Palma. If you have a volcano in your backyard, keep an eye on it if you're around the Ring of Fire. And um, if you're in the Midwest or even in the East, uh, tornadoes season, which used to end, you know, like a month or so ago, has now been extended because of the change of overall planetary climate. And not all of it, I believe, is due to the simple model of global warming. There are other factors going on, and one should be especially, uh, uh, shall we say, um, uh, cognizant of of these factors. Item number three, the reason we're holding this uh, broadcast tonight and doing another experiment in talking to ETs is because, in case you haven't noticed, if you've been hiding out somewhere in the South Pacific or you've been on on vacation somewhere in deepest Africa, the U.S. government's official stance on UFOs slash UAPs um, has changed radically, remarkably, in the last few months. Um, As of last week, the annual NDAA, the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, which has to be approved by both houses of Congress and then signed by the president into law to authorize the almost $800 billion of of, uh, resources of funding for the Department of Defense this act this year carries, uh, in, the, in the Senate version, an amendment authored by uh, um, both Republicans and Democrats, led by a Democrat, Senator uh, Gillibrand of New York, which establishes a groundbreaking unidentified aerial phenomenon office officially under the Department of Defense. In other words, UFOs have made it to the big time, they are now officially admitted to by none other than the U. Under that new umbrella of political uh, respectability, a whole bunch of things that were not possible politically just uh, weeks ago are now becoming very, very cogent. For instance, when you look at the radar data from the Princeton, which was one of the Uh, ships in the fleet that was part of the uh, uh, Nimitz battle group uh, off uh, California. Uh, The radar returns from the Princeton, as reported by the radar operator who has appeared apparently on several new shows, including uh, a Netflix uh, documentary, reported that um, that the objects that they were tracking on radar 
were able to descend from above 80,000 feet. That's like 16 miles up to the surface of the ocean in less than a second. And they moved through that equivalent amount of space, 16 miles in less than a second, at the equivalent of 216,000 miles per hour. But they didn't move. They jumped. They appeared at point A in the stratosphere, 80,000 feet or above. They then disappeared there and reappeared on the deck in less than a second at an equivalent speed if, they, if something had transited between those two points of 216,000 miles per hour. I have looked at this number because David Sarita has talked about this uh, extensively over the last uh, couple of shows, but it wasn't until tonight in the context of other results we got from pinging with the high power energy, radio energy, the moon, in a very interesting coded sequence that lasted about 15 minutes, I believe uh, Jimmy told me was how long we were going to transmit tonight. It wasn't until I saw some of those results that I realized that something had been bothering me about that 216,000 miles per hour number. Because remember, the codes that we're sending to Oumuamua and tonight to the moon are basically the same codes which can be found all over the planet, all over Earth, in ancient sacred sites, meaning our ancestors somehow knew something that we have forgotten. And they're also found in the major dimensions of planetary and satellite-sized bodies orbiting the sun and orbiting each other, as well as the spacing and orbital dimensions of those bodies. These same numbers come up again and again and again, which is one of the key reasons that I have said now for many, many years that this solar system at some point in the past, and I think I know when, um, it's uh, hundreds of millions of years ago, was redesigned. Someone came here. I called them the cosmic engineers. They came here and they literally moved planets around. They moved, you know, satellites around. They, they created an ordered, coherent, rhythmic, uh, resonant system, a hyperdimensional solar system whose objects literally reiterated the same fundamental mathematics of hyperdimensional physics itself. Well, as far as we know, for the first time in modern history, Earth, in the form of our experiment, our enterprise mission experiment, has sent via high-powered radio signals at the right frequency of 144.1 megahertz and 432 megahertz, this coded ancient human information back into the solar system two weeks ago and then last week toward Oumuamua and tonight toward the moon. Some interesting responses. I mean, some really interesting responses. Um, what I'd like you to do is to uh, uh, kind of click on item number four. Item number four is a historical overview written by the participants at the time in 1946, in January of 1946, right after World War II. 
The U.S. Army Signal Corps, located at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, which is just west and slightly south of New York City, decided to do a moon bounce experiment using an existing radar system, which was basically identical, except for some late modifications, to the radar system that detected the uh, Japanese uh, uh, aircraft uh, battle group approaching uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, it has a formal code name. I forget the name. But I do know that it transmitted on 111.5 megahertz. In other words, we're cr- transmitting at 144.1. That was transmitting back in 46 at 111.5. And there's not much difference. It's in the same frequency range of a uh, high-powered receiver of the era. And, of course, the... the uh, Uh, amateur radio, you know, uh, receivers that we currently have, which are infinitely smaller, solid state, and can do all kinds of things that the uh, clunky tube-based technology of the 1940s. We are able now, because of modern technology, to broadcast an extremely powerful signal to the moon. As I said, next weekend, we're going to do it in such a way that between the signals, we're going to listen and chart and map the echoes of the signal returning from the moon. Now tonight, the broadcast that we sent literally returned from the entire moon because the beam width of the antenna that uh, uh, Jimmy Blanchett is using is about 11 degrees. The moon is about half a degree wide in the sky. So the beam amply covered the entire moon and the signals were reflected back from the entire visible lunar surface. This is important because for the first time in this series of experiments, the signals that we are sending into space literally bounced back and bathed the Earth in these same coded hyperdimensional frequencies. Remember, frequencies that we found with our Accutron measurements and from the work of Carl Monk and other ancient um, archaeologists to be encoded in sacred sites built by our great, 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 great ancestors all over the world. Well, for the first time ever, those sites tonight were bathed in a reflected set of echoes containing their own frequencies, if we've done the math right, coming back from a full moon. And frankly, what I'm hoping that we might have done is to activate this ancient network of sites all around the world, which could do one extraordinarily important thing. It could raise the frequency of the planet to where consciousness, decent, simple, honest, logical consciousness, once again can reign supreme. In particular, there's one monument that I'm hoping that this might uh, accrue to, which is the Washington Monument in downtown Washington, D.C. And when we get into the program in a a few minutes, I'm going to have David describe again why that particular monument could be so seminal in the current unfolding, very turgid history of the United States against an equally turgid backdrop of what's going on all around the planet. So if you look at item number four, that is the description of the 1946 experiment 
which uh, demonstrates how they sent this coded signal, which was basically just beeps at 111.5 megahertz and listened for an echo. Nothing mathematical, nothing coded, no uh, language, just simple pings, and then waiting for an echo, a ping waiting for an echo. Item number five is the actual trace of the echo recorded on an oscilloscope at Fort Monmouth and then obviously photographed on good old film, scanned then put on the website as part of the history of Project Diana. Why Project Diana? Well, Diana, of course, is one of the uh, ancient names for the moon. The sister, by the way, to Artemis, uh, which is the current name uh, of the uh, mission to follow Apollo. Artemis is the sister of Apollo, and Diana is the sister of both. Um, anyway, um, Artemis is, is part of the mythological mix. And so the army, for the first time ever, began the historical precedent of naming U.S. government activities involving the moon after ancient Greek and Roman gods. And here we are tonight, poised on the eve of maybe Project Artemis sending the first woman to the moon sometime in the next few years. Back to item number five. If you look carefully, the antenna is there on the left. That's the transmitting antenna, which is kind of like a variant of the antenna that uh, Jimmy Blanchett has created there in northern uh, Arizona. Instead of standing vertical on a tall tower, it's closer to the ground and it has very similar Yegi elements. So it's basically the same kind of antenna because it broadcasts the same kind of wavelengths. Okay. The thing I really find interesting, in fact, amazing, in fact, kind of shocking and astounding and oh my god when I looked at it I said I can't believe what I'm seeing look at that trace of the signal being sent on the left and then the echo marked with the arrow at 230,000 miles on the right now at the bottom there's a scale which says 0 100,000 200,000 300,000 those are miles and those are a derived quantity. Remember, the only thing the radar is measuring is the time delay between the chirp, the burst of energy, and then the echo. So what you're really looking at is a time delay plot. Every squiggle is coming back to the antenna uh, on the left as a time-delayed uh, signal bouncing off the moon. Look carefully at the obvious increase in signal reception where it says on the bottom of the graph 238,000, which is the distance of the moon. Why isn't that echo a spike? Why is it very wide and broad and obviously delayed? In other words, it's a delayed echo. What could possibly cause a radio wave coming up from Earth, bouncing off the lunar surface, off a spherical specular reflector mirror, in essence, at these wavelengths, what could cause such an extraordinary long delay? Well, I think the answer lies in item number seven, 
Uh, I'll, I'll get back to number six in a minute. Click on number seven. This is a stunningly high-resolution terrestrial image taken in 2008 by a very extraordinary set of uh, astrophotographers in uh, Romania. And it shows in exquisite detail that brilliant, curving, reddish band around the entire circumference of the moon with the sun's corona behind it and the bluish features of a full moon down below. This, in fact, is a photograph taken digitally, composited with several images adjusted in brightness to not only capture the actual reflected sunlight um, bouncing off the Earth, in other words, Earth light, but also with the sun behind it, that huge reddish band along the lunar horizon is in fact the brilliant chromosphere, the hydrogen-rich red layer of cooler gas material lying above the brilliant photosphere of the sun. And none of that should be visible during an eclipse unless there is some kind of refractive glass dome in incredible tatters and ruins now, but with enough structure left to refract like a giant lens, the width of the moon, the sunlight from behind the moon, the layer above the sun of the chromosphere, neatly, geometrically, through this thin glass shell composed of multiple layers, and as you can see, much interior geometry, and to refract that beam directly into the shadow of the moon flying across the Earth at over 2,000 miles an hour during a total eclipse. In other words, because of the relative geometry of the sun, the moon, and Earth, and the fact that the moon is not always at the same distance from the Earth during a total eclipse, at some times in Earth's orbit of the sun, and the moon's orbit of the Earth, the distances line up to where this incredible, ancient, incredibly porous glass shell, whatever remains of this ancient superdome that someone placed, built around the entire moon, at the limb, at the edge, that geometry matches, and you can see a refracted image in the glass of the sun's chromosphere 93 million miles beyond. There is no way that this can happen unless there is an active optical dome literally above the moon. Which you go back now to item number five, that extended pulse, the purported echo from the Project Diana moon bounce experiment in January of 1946. The reason that pulse is so wide is because I believe Army's radio signal sent as a short quarter second burst got to the moon, bounced around inside the remains of the ancient glass dome, which is doped with some kind of metals. So it is like an artificial ionosphere. It has conductive elements and the extended leakage of that echo back toward Earth 
after it bounced around countless times, that echo is what is detected on that Project Diana Trace. And so if this is true, next weekend, literally next Saturday and Sunday night, and of course on on Friday night, but you won't hear it because we won't be on the air, what we're going to do is to try to measure with modern technology the literal echoes that we can detect with Jimmy's equipment from the ancient glass dome around the moon. Fly me to the moon Let me play among the stars Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars In other words Hold my hand In other words Baby, kiss me With song and let me sing forevermore. You are all I long for, all I worship and adore. In other words, please be true. In other words, I love you. Well, I think you're looking with this great reset, you're looking at Mr. Globaloni's efforts to move everybody into a cashless society, which, you know, like it or not, that's a one-way mirror, folks. Because at that point, you're not dealing with a currency. You're dealing with a corporate coupon that they can adjust the value of at the push of a button, depending on whether or not you're good little boys and girls. And if you're getting into a system where all of the infrastructure of financial clearing is in the hands of the bankers, that's not a system you want to go into. You look at the West, and more importantly, if you look at what some people call the Anglosphere, the, the Western powers that are English-speaking, the United Kingdom, Canada, United States, and so on. I do think it's the case there. They're using a health crisis really to drive a, a political agenda. And the health crisis itself is largely blown way, way out of proportion to what's actually the case. If you look at what Mr. Globalone is up to, they are recreating slavery. And the, the thing that is unique about slavery is they now have the means of perfecting the capital because now they can literally implant your body with the means to track you. It's not going to go away overnight, but there are already uh, I think some hopeful signs of cracks beginning to appear in the edifice. 
This is Joseph P. Farrell. And for all the news the media doesn't like you to hear, tune in to the other side of the news. side of midnight for this Saturday night, December 18th, 2021. We are in the middle of an interesting experiment, and boy, do we have some results. So let me introduce my panel tonight, uh, not in any particular order, because uh, I actually uh, can't remember too much, so I will just do this kind of randomly. We've got David Sarita on deck, who is a citizen scientist. He has been studying for decades these remarkable hyperdimensional quantities and numbers and ratios, including some like the golden mean, which everybody is uh, kind of familiar with. But uh, in these contexts, it takes on a whole different meaning. The mean has more meaning. Uh, we got John Womack with us. John, of course, is a computer expert. He does tremendous animations. We're going to be introducing uh, a really amazing example of his work uh, a little later in the program. John also is an expert in out-of-body experiences and kind of communicating with extraterrestrials in a very direct, up-close, and personal, one-on-one, non-radio fashion. So he is with us. Um, Let's see, who am I missing? Oh, Don Ecker. Don Ecker and I got together decades ago when, as an ex-cop, as a uh, uh, detective, I gave him a mission. I said, find me a copy of this damn thing called the Brookings Report. And of all the people I'd asked, Don was successful, and he actually eventually pointed me in the right direction. And this, of course, has become a kind of a staple of the Enterprise mission history, where we now have a logical reason for all aspects of the cover-up for the last uh, 50-plus years of NASA's existence. Um, I wanted Don on tonight because in addition to being heavily involved in the current UFO slash UAP 
uh, activity. He also is part of a publication. Um, it has changed its names a couple of times, so I will let him describe under its current name what it is and what it covers and why it's important. Because as we move from, you know, we're all kind of gorillas out here in the hinterlands trying to get attention on something important to where the government finally says, okay, it's real. Now we're going to take control. Remember that line in uh, uh, Close Encounters where uh, some technician says we're taking control of this conversation now? Well, part of the reason that we're doing these experimental broadcasts and trying to literally open hailing frequencies with whoever is out there is because I don't trust the government to tell us, even now, in this new paradigm, the truth. I trust that they will tell us part of the truth. They will tell us a self-serving truth. They will tell us a warped, manipulated, and you know, somewhat you know, abrogated version of the truth. But they may not want to talk about the really interesting stuff which comes hat in hand with the entire history of the UFO phenomenon. So it's people like uh, Don that I think is, are going to be very important in keeping us in the next weeks and months and years honest on the subject. Let's see, if I, have I forgotten anybody? We're going to hopefully be joined by um, um, Maria Wheatley a little later in the morning. We have put out a call to her because uh, we found something so amazing tonight that I felt that it was really important that we get her on the program to get a kind of a live reaction and some background. And I won't give away what we found because I'm going to let David do that. Um, I think that kind of takes care of all the introductions. So without further ado, let me open the mic and invite you all back to the other side of midnight for this very historic December 18th, 2021. Oh, Thank and you. I, I'm sorry, I must interrupt. Ron Gerbron is also going to be joining us uh, probably in the third hour. So, David, why don't you start and describe what we did and what you tracked? Because tonight we had three receivers located literally thousands of miles apart, which all got the same return response. Two of them were able to be recorded. Um, yours, and then Keith Morgan had one just outside Washington, D.C. My record, my recorder, my uh, radio is sitting in the pyramid upstairs. Uh, I cannot move it downstairs to, to record, so I simply observe the activity, and by next weekend, I will be able to record. So, um, David, you're on deck. So, first, I just want to do a correction on the USS uh, Princeton and Nimitz. There's two separate cases. One where the radar said from above 80,000 feet, okay. the, the UAP dropped to the deck in 0.78 seconds, and that would be 66,545 miles per hour. Now, the second case, totally separate case, they got on radar. This was um, Kevin Day, the radar operator, at the end of this new Netflix series. The UAP jumped 60 miles in one second, which comes to 216,000 miles an hour, which is an octave of 432,000 miles an hour because times two, which is an octave. So what the reason those numbers are important, the 216, the 432, uh, is because you're going to start to see a pattern in what we did tonight, and you're going to start to see a pattern where you're going to see these three or four sets of numbers where the decimal slides to the left and the right, but you're going to see the same numbers everywhere. 
So what's amazing, what Richard said earlier tonight, is that the moon is the function of the 216, because it's 2,160 uh, miles in diameter. Miles. So that's, okay, so times 100, you have, you have the 216,000. So there you go. You see what I'm talking about. Now, well, let me, let me when, stop you there, because my initial assessment of the um, appearance of UFOs zipping around two battle groups was, you know, it was one military talking to another military, kind of like, you know, mine is bigger than yours, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But as I went through this data, particularly some of the things that you brought out, like where the Princeton saw it disappear at the same latitude north of the of the battle group as is the latitude of the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the slope angle of, of, the, of the Great Pyramid, I began to wonder, were all these activities, in fact, a tutorial over what everybody anywhere in the universe has to know, the way to get Earth's attention is to threaten its military, and then people will take it very seriously, which, of course, is, in fact, why we now have a UFO office officially established under the Department of Defense. Many, many years, but it worked. But as that part of that tutorial, they seem to be talking about the same fundamental physics and the constants and the numbers and the frequencies and the geometry as has been laid out in ancient sacred sites all over this planet for literally thousands of years. So it's like they, whoever they are out there, tooling around in you know, high-tech spacecraft, apparently are trying to connect us back to our own heritage, which is laid out in all kinds of ancient ceremonial sites and key places uh, on the planet where the physics resonates, as I've measured with Robin with the uh, Akatron. So that's the backstop to tonight's results. It is. It is. So it's important to establish, and this is Jimmy Blanchett and my discovery, that you take 432, so which is, again, 216 times 2, which is an octave. You get 432 times 100,000, so we're in 10 base math here, equals 43,200,000. Now, you divide that by the master number. Remember, tonight we transmitted at 432 megahertz and 144.1 megahertz. So watch what happens here. 432 which is one of the numbers we transmitted at tonight to the moon, times 100,000 is 43,200,000 divided by 144.1 equals the speed of light in metric. To Again, the speed of light has a slight variance every time they measure it, but this produces 299,791.811 versus what we use today is 299,792,458. So now watch how incredible this is, because when we relate that again to our moon's diameter, which is a function of the 432, because it's 216, and then the Kevin Day's radar uh, data, you know, shows the UAP jumping 216,000 miles um, an hour, 216,000 miles an hour is a function of 432, and 432 to the 144.1 is a function of the speed of light. Now, the Great Pyramid of Egypt, it happens to be its north latitude to convert to degrees, minutes, and seconds to 10 base decimal is the speed of light, um, 100,000 is the speed of light. So you take 299, 792, 458, but then you move your decimal to 
two nine points and you, you continue the function, you, you have an expression of a 10 base fraction of the speed of light for the location of the Great Pyramid of Egypt. Now note, again, this was in the series unidentified inside America's you know, um, UFO program. This was, again, the radar data from Kevin Day showed the UAPs disappeared just north of Guadalupe Island at the same north latitude as the Great Pyramid, which is the function of the speed of light in the decimal, right? So you got you start to see this pattern of these numbers. So tonight, what is utterly astounding is when you know Jimmy did the moon bounce. I followed the instruction. I turned on both of my radios. One it tuned to 144.1 megahertz, and the other at 432 megahertz. Now, normally. When I turn on my radios, I don't hear much at 432. Most of the chatter in my location, which is in the middle of the nowhere, is on the 144.1. So I'm going to play. You can hear the sound of what happens. So when, when the radios start chirping, I use this frequency meter app, which allows me to take a picture in a fraction of a second of all the frequencies jumping on the screen. Now, if you go to my items tonight on on um, on your website, you come to item number one, you'll see a picture of the number I detected as a frequency is the speed of light in metric. Again, with the decimal just moved over. And this blew my mind to such a degree that <laughs> what are the odds that what you think is static, they're sending back the same functional number, again, moving the decimal over, so it appeared as 299, 7.99. So that's, that's the speed of light today to an accuracy of 99.997%. <laughs> so that's how phenomenal the, that response is. There's no way in, in billions of calculations, the odds that I would pick up that number on my frequency meter, I mean, forget about it. Forget about it being chance. But this is what it actually sounded like. Now, now, prior to the moon bounce, I turned my radios on, and after the moon bounce, both Richard and I detected our radios were very quiet. I had the odd chirp at 144.1, but it, it took about 10 or 15 minutes, and my radios went crazy for over a half an hour, and so I did this technique of using my my frequency meter app to take, you know, it's like there's so many numbers jumping out of what appears to be like that kind of stuff. But what you find when you look at the numbers is they're not, um, it's not just noise. In other words, it's not just static noise. It's not just hiss. It's not white noise either. There's very specific numbers they're throwing at me. Now, this one number that I captured, although I didn't get a picture of it, it's a remarkable number because it's a perfect function 
of the 144.1 times the number 56. So the number I saw on my, on my frequency app was 8,069.6. So I said, is, is that a function of 144.1, right? Is that a ratio of 144.1? And it turns out it is. If I divide that by 144.1, I get the number 56. And Richard immediately <laughs> knew what that meant, right? Oh, this is so serendipitous because that number, 56, is literally physically encoded in the outer circle of something at Stonehenge called the Aubrey Circle. There are 56 holes in a circle inside a set of stones and outside the other set of, you know, the blue stones and the sarsens and all that. It's part of the architecture of this ancient monument, which we now know from the work of Gerald Hawkins back in the 19. 50s and 60s was an ancient multi-thousand-year-old celestial solar and lunar observatory. So what these guys are doing tonight, whoever's answering our moon bounce using the exact frequency that we sent to the moon for about 15 minutes repetitively, they reflected to us or, or transmitted to us a set of frequencies that his meter captured, which resolves down to 56 Aubrey holes, which none other than Sir Fred Hoyle, remember Chandra Wickrama Singh's very good friend. We've talked with Chandra many times about, you know, Sir Fred and their relationship. Fred Hoyle proposed that the 56 Aubrey holes were actually markers where a stone would be moved two holes per day around in a circle counterclockwise to mark literally the phases of the moon. So you have this interlocking set of connections, which to me says very straightforwardly, high-tech 21st century you know, humans are sending for the first time ever in modern history the right numerical hyperdimensional codes. Whoever's receiving them sends back signals which translate to the ancient origin of these codes embodied in one of the most striking ancient monuments on the planet which was built to track the moon i.e. Stonehenge and that's why I'm crossing my fingers that Maria Wheatley who was sleeping peacefully through all of this because it was the middle of the night over there when this all took place we're going to surprise her and then ask her more details about the model of Stonehenge as an ancient observatory built to track the moon in other words, someone out there is caring to reflect to us our own human forgotten hyperdimensional history, and they're trying to resurrect it so we can use it to literally save the planet and ourselves. Did we get her? Did she come on? Or? No, no, she's coming on in the third hour. So, I mean, the, the odds of this, I mean, if if we have if we could get the attention of the of the scientific community to look at what we're doing and to see that we're not just staring into static and white noise. I mean, I remember that scene in in the movie Contact when the blind guy's got the headphones on, and you know because he can't see, he he's so good at listening at the static and and looking for structure 
you know, when I when we slowed down the the pulses, what we call the chirps, we can see the wave pattern of what real language or human language voice signatures look like as a waveform. In fact, one of the items I have up left over from last week is my item number four. I created a wave file. I mean, I created a recording of 144.1 hertz. And when you look at a single tone frequency as a wave structure, you're seeing the exact diameter of a wave repeating itself, you know, for as long as you have that tone or that frequency going on. So this isn't what we see in the returns on the radio as a waveform. What we see looks like human voice signature or a human musical um, presentation signature, which is multiple frequencies in, in this combination. But the fact that they would send us these two numbers on this meter, and this meter is very accurate. It's called frequency meter. And it, it, uh, you can get them in the app store. And so when you're listening to, to the meter is, is listening to sounds, it allows you to just freeze, to pause. And it, it freezes on the frequency the, that it hears the moment you hit the pause button. So that's what I did. That's the method I did. So when you see the speed of light, you're saying, who's sending this? Like, who could possibly be sending this to us? Because there's nobody on the moon that got our signal that would send us back the number in, in, in what appears to be white noise that is a function of the speed of light. I mean, there's just, there's no way that that can possibly be chaotic. Or a and fundamental connection to Stonehenge. Which is a fundamental connection to Stonehenge. So that's telling us that they're drawing a line between, between Stonehenge and the signal. So they're, 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 they're really telling us to look at the, what is the significance of the 56 holes, right? So that's when you got to do your homework. Well, there's something even deeper here because before you figured out, and we won't go into how you figured it out to, you know, get a screenshot so you could get the speed of light number, but you didn't get this 56, 144.1 number. Before you figure that out, you tried several times. You stabbed the button, and it would freeze frame, and you would see this number. And then you would divide it by 144.1, and it would spit out again and again 56. In other words, they were redundantly sending that. Yeah, it was three times. I captured that number three times. And and when I captured the speed of white, I had to, I had to get my daughter to show me how to do a screen capture. <laughs> image my 11 year old daughter so that's what you're seeing is item number one so that's the technique i'm using the other technique is much harder actually where you take your wave file and you run your cursor along and it, it produces um numbers as frequencies based on the wavelength it, it's it's you know scanning itself over so this way i get a digital readout using this technique but you've got to do it a lot and you got to look at a lot of numbers because when you're hearing those chirps, don't think it's the same frequency and the same chirp repeating itself. No. I mean, I have a lot of experience doing this. It's not. They're sending tons of different numbers. So, and again, if you were to learn this language of numbers and you see a number like 216 or 299, 790 something, you know you're looking at the speed of light in, in, 
in metric. And so when your mind is trained to look for numbers, you immediately go, aha, I, I know what they're saying. So they're, they're speaking this language of mathematics to us. Well, what's, even, somebody there. What, what, what's even kind of funny about this, it's like they're these super advanced technological uh, beings, civilization, whatever, right? And we know they have mastered faster than light travel because la- two weeks ago, the UFOs showed up as we're broadcasting to Oumuamua, showed up a couple of minutes after uh, Jimmy started broadcasting, and it takes 3.69 hours for a signal to get to Oumuamua, and if they started back immediately, 3.69 hours back. So we know that faster-than-light vehicle you know, uh, transfer is possible and by metonymy signals. Tonight, they deliberately sent us a, a coded speed of light as we've measured it to basically say, hey, you primitives, we understand you're using primitive radio, limited to the speed of light. Okay, we, 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 we get that. Here, here we're showing you we get that. And maybe the tutorial will, you know, in future weeks as we decode this stuff, because we've just begun to work on it, and we've been talking to some people outside. If there's anybody anywhere in the world that has expertise in codes, in frequency analysis, in, in spectrum analyzers, if they have computer algorithms that can do this en masse and spit out coherent translations, we need all that. And we need funds to buy some equipment, but by and large, we need to find the right people with the right expertise and either get them to become entranced with the project so they donate their time, or we're going to have to pay them to, for their time so we get the right professional level results. But this is monumental, and I'll give you another political development that occurred uh, in our listening efforts right after we take the break at the top of the hour. My guests this morning, too numerous to mention, you can go to the website and see who they are, um, are going to be continuing with this kind of real-time analysis. Um, In the meantime, I think that it's uh, time to take another uh, look at the Wayback Machine and maybe... Take a listen to this. Moon River, wider than a mile. I'm crossing you in style someday. Old dreaming to you heartbreaking. Wherever you're going, I'm going your way to drifters off to see the world. There's such a lot of world to see. We're after the same Waiting round the bend, my huckleberry friend, moving and You're listening to the other side of midnight on this Saturday, December 18th. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Why? 
Saturday night, the other side of midnight. I want to bring on John, John Womack. John, you've been playing around with these frequencies now for a few days. Um, I'd be really intrigued to know what you found out. Well, indeed, it does sound like language. And when I listen to it, you can hear, you can hear them talking in a way. Wow. Yeah. And it reminds me of the scene in Close Encounters when the, the aliens are giving the humans a little tutorial with the, the music playback. And there were a couple of chirps that stood out to me. They were very, did you get that? <laughs> Do you understand? <laughs> so you can feel uh, they're emotional, can't you? They're emotional. And maybe I'll share that one next week. Because uh, there, there's one in particular that's very emotional. But um, I, you asked me to uh, take some of the chirps uh, that David received from during our December 4th show a few weeks ago. And um, it's an 18-second clip of chirps. Is that number five? Uh, let me see. It says 18 seconds. <laughs> Number three, okay, four, five. Yes. Okay. okay. So, Normal so, so, so yes. let me play that first, and then we'll stop it, and you can talk about what we hear. Okay. okay. Ready? Here goes. 
Okay. Now, do we want now, that last we... little chirp you heard was what I mentioned before? It was just really emotional. Like, did you get that? Hmm. You know, was that kind of feeling? So, should so, we should we play the slow down version next? Yeah, let's listen to that. Okay, just uh, all right. Here we go. You can hear there are pauses. Okay, it goes on like that for another minute. So, John, what do you think we're hearing? I think we're hearing language, whether it's numbers or words. I I don't know, but it's probably, you know, a mathematical message. Like, David's been receiving these numbers, and so I imagine it's... um, a way to acknowledge that they've received the uh, radio signal and this is their way of answering. Well, as I about reversing it, like, you know, reverse speech, uh, have you? Uh, oh, no, that's an interesting idea. You know, because the Arabs read right to left, we read left to right, you know, that whole idea. It'd be interesting to, to do reverse yeah. Well, no, no, no. This, this is really exciting. God, why didn't I think of this? Because remember, when we found the stuff at the southern end of Jezero Crater, I proposed an idea that maybe we, the solar system, have been encapsulated in some kind of a bubble, a hyperdimensional bubble where, you know, everything outside was mirrored compared to what's inside. This idea that we might be getting transmissions between dimensions which would account for the high speed relative to, you know, normal. If you reverse it, if you literally listen to it back to front, maybe it will take on another kind of meaning. And again, we need the resources to do all this. This is, you know, we're basically using, to quote Spock, you know, stone knives and bearskins to try to do this. We need very sophisticated computer algorithms and equally sophisticated people who know how to use them, and that means we need funding. So you see the donate button up at the top of the page. Send us whatever you can. Now is the time if you want to keep the control of the message out of the monotheistic control of the U.S. government because we're in touch directly with somebody who's obviously trying to tell us some very important stuff. Yeah, Richard, and then one thing I'd like to see is somebody write an algorithm that would mimic the sound underwater, just like in Star Trek, and people may laugh, but uh, (laughs) 
It's, hey, wait a minute. You're on to something there because, you know, when you consider time dilation and the refractive index, the speed of light slows down over 22 or 23% underwater. And another thing that occurred to me is if they're sending me a slightly different speed of light than what we measure as the speed of light in, in, in a vacuum, we're, we're not considering refractive indexes. So and you, you, oh, yeah. and the torsion waves are slowed down as well. Right. Through water. Right. So we got not so sure about that, but um, you know, we can we can we can measure that. Well, again, all this is measurable. It's all when you're that close, like the number they sent me tonight is so so close to what we measure the speed of light in metric. I actually calculated the difference. The problem is I can't see enough decimals on my my little meter, but I can speculate there's between six and seven miles per second um, difference in, in, in the speed of light they sent me versus what we measure in a vacuum. The, the refractive index of air is so small in our atmosphere, it, it's negligible. It's not even worth calculating. But when you get, for example, a diamond has super high refractive index. So the speed of light slows down in a diamond, which is why it's so and reflective. But that actually what you just played, Jonathan, it does remind me of underwater, you know, um, dolphin or whale sounds to some degree. I mean, you might have to adjust the speed just a little bit. Remember the speed on our old records when you had a record player, you had it was RPMs, mm-hmm. 33 and a third. Yeah, so you could, it's like you just have to adjust it a little bit because, and then try the, it reminded me a little bit of reverse speech. <clears throat> you know, when you, That's when a you brilliant play. idea to reverse it because if we are in a mirror pocket universe, think of, you know, the Phantom Zone and the Superman, you know, movies, playing it backwards, like John Oates' detection of reverse speech and consciousness could be the key to understanding so much more. Wow, what an idea. I mean, if, and, country, if you play country western music backwards, you get your girlfriend back in your truck back. Oh, so. that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> or you hear, I buried Paul. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> hey, let me, let me go to Ron. Are you with us, Ron Gerbron? Mr. Gerbron, are you with us? Maybe to go. No. Yes, I'm here. There I had to unmute. Okay. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, on the backward masking? No, the whole the whole McGillicuddy, the whole thing. Oh, well, I had one thought, and it came back when you, they were you were still talking about the um, Nimitz sightings. Uh, I think there's a simple explanation for that. Uh, 216,000 mile an hour drop. Mm-hmm. That's not actually what it was because I think this is all, I think they're skipping on a demand from one dimension to another. It doesn't mean moving back and forth exactly. Somehow they've got whatever mechanism you use to translate mm-hmm. from one to the other. Uh, you can focus it like a the beam of a flashlight, you know, stand way back from a building at night with a flashlight, really bright one. And, um, you know, point it at the wall and move your hand. I mean, flicking your wrist, that's maybe four, let's say your your thumb moves laterally about four inches. 
how far does the spot on that distant wall move at that length of time? In that oh, hun- hundreds of feet. Yeah, and I think that's what's going on here. The uh, on this side, it's just a stutter, just a bump, but it uh, translated to the other dimension. It's position. Never mind how fast we'd call it by our standards. Its position varies just that quickly. Zip down to that other spot. Translated to this side, that's a tremendous distance or a tremendous speed. Yeah, but see, what I got uh, uh, captured by in terms of attention was the number. You know, it wasn't 179. It wasn't 233. It was 216 followed by a bunch of zeros. The moon is 2160 miles in diameter. The um, uh, ratios of, of uh, you know, certain hyperdimensional constants, 2160. It's like the processional cycle, you know, moves through one period of time uh, in 2160, you know, uh, days and that kind of thing. So it's all part of a coherent mathematical package. And they could have chosen any number to jump from 80,000 feet down to the deck. They chose that number that translates in miles per hour to two one six zero 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 zero. Drop off the well, unnecessary that's... zeros, and you get a message. You get a redundant hyperdimensional code. That's meaningful. Well, that it, well, it is. It could relate to the spacing. I won't say distance between dimensions. It could. Well, you're getting By close that flashlight to there. We're getting mm-hmm. close to something there because when you have variables of the speed of light, again, water is a different dimension than air, which is a different dimension mm-hmm. than space. So there may be hyperdimensional spaces where your inertial value drops and movement without resistance is. I think is a better easy. analogy might be quantum jumps in the atom where you can't go in between. You're basically locked into certain frequencies. And this could be one of those multiple. That, no, wait, you brought up an important point there. I, I want to, there's, there's a passage in what's called the secret gospel of John, where, where this is in the resurrected Christ, is telling John that humanity was cast to the lowest region of matter, not oh. the lowest region of the universe geographically, the lowest region of matter. And maybe that's why we don't see anybody else but us. But maybe oh, interesting. there's a code on matter itself that is that is a you could call it an octave shift or you could call it a ratio shift. It sounds like energy and or dimensional, you know, step <clears throat> uh, quantum leaps, quantum jumps. Right. Right. So you just have to vibrate matter at, within a particular uh, set of ratios. To, to leap out of it, and that's what they're doing, and they're telling us that. It's just like the 432 music, because, you know, in Jimmy's numbers, 432, 144, and the speed of light have this perfect relationship harmonically. So the speed of light in metric, 432 and 144, 1, are in this perfect mathematical formula. You take 432 times 10 to the fifth divided by 144.1, you've got the the speed of light in metric two ninety nine seven ninety two four fifty eight so so that, that that's telling us something right because that's that's the data we're getting and we're transmitting at the speed of light at one forty four point one and four hundred thirty two megahertz so so we're and then they respond to us and they say here's the speed of light spit right back at you and we hear you 
Well, so. it's exactly like Bracewell. Now, now you can go to number six in my section of Radio with Pictures. Let me read a little bit. This is from David Darling's website. David is a British astronomer who's been on the show a couple of times. Uh, let me make this bigger so I can see. Okay. Bracewell probes are hypothetical automated spacecraft sent out by advanced technological races with the object of making contact and exchanging information with other intelligent beings in the galaxy. They are named after Ronald Bracewell, who first discussed their possibility in 1960. Bracewell argued that interstellar messenger probes, as he called them, offered an attractive alternative to conventional SETI approaches of listening for ET signals and if successful engaging in a slow dialogue across many light years. As originally conceived, Bracewell probes powered by high-speed propulsion units for interstellar travel and autonomously controlled by computers with a high degree of artificial intelligence would be dispatched towards star systems that have been earmarked as biologically interesting. Upon arrival at a target star, a Bracewell probe would enter a near-circular orbit in the middle of the star's habitable zone and in the same plane as its planetary system. This would ideally place it in a position to make contact with any intelligent technological residence. Having powered up its instruments using light harvested from the host star, it would scan for narrow band radio transmissions indicative of an artificial origin. If any were found, it would record them, identify their source, and broadcast their contents back unaltered in order to draw attention to itself. This would allow the existence and location of the probe to be established and a subsequent dialogue to be conducted. And that's the theory under which I started this idea of sending signals to Oumuamua. Because apparently of all the people that brought money forth and listened and you know, borrowed major radio telescopes to, you know, listen in toward the end of, uh, of 2017, nobody thought to transmit, and they certainly didn't think to transmit on the key numbers and codes that we're now using in this ongoing uh, experimentation, and they got nothing as a result. It's like a muamua sailed through the system, said, well, there's nobody home because they're not translating on the right frequencies, and it just kept going. So what do you think could happen next, guys? Well, it, it's, it's, a, it's definitely hitting it with the right code. And, and that we, we see the, the data on the golden ratio in Oumuamua as well. And I, I want to bring this up because this is, this is remarkable data. This is, again, against all odds. So when you when you're looking through Fibonacci's sequence of numbers, zero zero one one two three five eight thirteen twenty one thirty four eighty nine one forty four, right? So one forty four is a Fibonacci number. And I I I I when I first heard about a Muamua, I mean this was kind of like a fantasy in mind. I thought, what if it's Noah's Ark? Because the Bible says the ark never touched the earth, which means it wouldn't have touched the water either because the water is part of the earth. But let's just say, for example, we're going to play this game and we're going to, com- 
I actually did this. Compare Amuamua's data to Noah's Ark. And when I was when I was in the middle of a three-year cubit war trying to find the perfect royal cubit to inches that absolutely resolved the Great Pyramid and actually resolved Solomon's Temple and actually resolved the Ark of the Covenant. I mean perfectly. This war went on for three years because I had to look at so many cubits and do so many calculations. And there's an archaeologist um, named Ron Wyatt who measures the remains of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat. And this made world press. And because it came to 515 feet, because people were attached to the wrong cubit, they said, well, that couldn't be Noah's Ark because, you know, it's a diff- that wouldn't be the cubit we use, right? But if you look in the book of Ezekiel, God tells the prophet Ezekiel to use a cubit plus the hand, which is the royal cubit, not the common builder's cubit. Now watch what happens. I'm going to show you data on a muamua that shows the golden, what's known as golden number, which is 1 to 1.618039 or 618, which is the portion of, of beyond the 1 to 1 ratio in, in the cube. So Noah's Ark being 300 cubits, you, you finally come to the perfect royal cubit, which is 20.601 inches per royal cubit times 280 cubits gives you the exact, I mean exact, finished height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, according to Peter Lemizurier, is 480.69 feet. So, so when you come to Noah's Ark, watch what happens. You just get out your calculator. You're not going to believe what you're going to see here. 300 cubits times 20.601 inches is exactly 6180.3 inches. That is precision to the golden ratio portion of 61803-39887. You see what I'm saying? It's perfection. 6180.3 is a decimal function of golden number, which actually comes to 515.025 feet, which is what Ron Wyatt found the remains of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat, 515 feet. He wouldn't see the 025 with a measuring tape, but that would prove that the cubit that was used at the time of Noah is the 20.601, which gives us the golden ratio in inches as golden number. Now, when Amuamua came to its closest distance to Earth of 24,200,000 kilometers and the Earth to the Sun astronomical unit distance of 149,597,870, happens to be a ratio of 1 to 618, <laughs> which is your golden ratio, your golden number with the decimal moved over, which is just a 10 base function going left to right. Now, when we tracked on the online tracker, which seemed to change velocity, which mean, which I don't know how they're doing this. Well, it's all, it's, 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 it's all a predetermined calculation. They're assuming that, calculation. They're, they're, hang on. It, it, they are assuming yeah. that as it kept coasting uphill, leaving mm-hmm. the sun, leaving the sun's gravity field, it would slow down in a Newtonian fashion or, you know, a relativistic fashion at very low speed. It's only moving compared to light 60,000, actually 58,000 miles per hour and change. So it's climbing uphill like you toss the ball against gravity. The sun's gravity will never pull it back, but it's moving slower now than it was as it whipped around the sun at closest approach at 195,000 miles per hour. Move the decimal points. There's 
You see how this works? The decimal points are irrelevant. It's the numbers themselves that are the code. And we see another example of this in all those damn crop circles. Because a friend of mine years ago went over and started measuring, and she said, well, wait a minute. These numbers are not decimally correct, but if you move the decimal, they work out perfectly in terms of ratios and functions and comparisons. And that's when I realized, you know, that the guys doing the crop circles and the guys talking to us tonight and last weekend and the weekend before either are the same guys or they all know the same stuff and we're the dunderheads on the block that they're gently trying to now lead in the direction of open hyperdimensional conversation. You see, that's, I mean, at one point when, when I just about at the end of Avila's book um, on, uh, on extraterrestrial, his, his hypothesis on Oumuamua and the, the battle that, that he faces in the, in the mainstream scientific community of, of trying to accept that there may be an intelligently driven um, object that moved through our, our solar system in 2017 but again the when you see functions like this when you keep seeing a repetition of these perfect numbers there there has to be intelligence there there has to be because you, you can't get that through random chance there's just no way so again we're we're we need we, we need to take this to another level. I mean, when I look at Avi Loeb's data and I look at his book and I look at what he's up against, you know, he would have a hard time ignoring this data because this is solid data. I mean, one to, to, to 618 in its closest pass to Earth in one astronomical unit is undeniably golden number in a, in a fraction, I mean, in a 10-based, you know, um, uh, movement mathematically that, that cannot possibly be ignored and the data we're getting on these radios again you know in our earlier show Richard we talked about Nikola Tesla and Marconi reporting the same chirping Morse code style um, phenomenon way back in the beginning of the creation of radio so we know that we're we're dealing with something that is not interference we know from the tests that we've done on these radios that there's no measurable RF radio frequencies coming in detectable on an RF meter sensitive to six gigahertz, which is way up there. Um, so we, we, we're trying to, to get research funding and maybe a research grant to take this to another level. I mean, maybe, and I asked Jimmy this, what if we took the 432 function to the gigahertz level? Like what if we look at, you know, the, the, the hydrogen, um, the hydrogen line. I mean, when the signal came in, for example, the wow signal came in just a tad above the the hydrogen line, which I believe is 1.420 gig. Yeah, yeah, it is 1420. Yeah, it, it came in just above it, and that's where they would expect an intelligent signal because you wouldn't want to come inside of the hydrogen line because it would be a mess in there. You'd have too much fog. Oh, there's too much natural noise in the galaxy. It would drown you right. out. It would drown you out, so you would come just a tad above it. I'll tell you what, I'm going to have to ask you to pause because we're at the bottom of the hour. When we come back, I'm going to call on Don Ecker to kind of give a perspective of this against the backdrop of the amazingly fascinating developments in the UFO field 
But uh, for right now, we need to hold it. We need to, well, I think we might want to take a listen to this. You're on the other side of it, Nate. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And as I say in the film, this could be the first day of school. The only thing these phrases have in common are five, six. I hope somebody's taken all this down. What are we saying to each other? Seems to try and teach us a basic tonal vocabulary. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. 
Talk Radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. can stroll beside the road of the rolling sea. Moon over Miami, shine on as we begin. A dream or two that may come true as the tide comes in. And welcome back to the other side of midnight for this Saturday night, December 18th, 2021. We're in the middle of a moon bounce conversation because tonight we opened up hailing frequencies with the moon. And we received all kinds of really interesting signals in return. Unlike December 4th, no, we didn't see UFOs. It was very bright, uh, Jimmy says, against the moon. So maybe they're on the video, maybe they're not. We'll know in the next few hours. But what we did get, and what David and uh, um, John have been describing, is very complex radio transmissions and I even have to qualify that because it turns out it's not exactly radio and we'll get into that later in the morning so yes moon over Miami over the entire night side of the earth on this full moon night in 2021 when we send signals hyperdimensional signals and somebody is answering in code like indeed it is the first day of school yeah, I say move over Miami. You know we're waiting for a little love. A little kiss Oh, oh my ambition On my ambition And welcome back, everyone. Well, Don, you've been listening to the first part of the show. Are we nuts or are we on to something? Unmuting helps. I hear someone typing. This is live programming, folks. Don, if you unmute, it does help. Is Don there? I do not hear Don. Hmm. That's very weird. Okay, while we're trying to get John uh, Don back, uh, um, 
why don't we go back to David and we'll talk about uh, what we're hearing. Well, I want to point out something interesting, and it, it goes back to the idea that there's no way an aircraft could do 216,000 miles an hour, because that comes to Mach 281.51. So you you can't imagine, like, even a meteorite doing 45,000 miles an hour is disintegrating in the atmosphere. And you, you can't imagine anything moving through the atmosphere that fast. But how fast did you say Oumuamua was at its peak again, Richard? 195,000 miles an hour as it made the turn at perihelion around the sun. God, that's close to the 216,000 miles an hour. That yeah, but 195,000 is 19.5. In other words, it's another part of the hyperdimensional right. tetrahedral code. And all of, this, yes, all, of this can't, all of this can't be accidental because each of these parameters depends on angle of approach, 33 degrees, remember, with the plane of the solar right. system. I saw that, yeah, the 33-degree approach, which is remarkable in itself. That's another proof of non-accidental, you know, very planned angle of approach. But, David, the, these ships are in flux. They're not – I don't think they're material – you know, no, you're getting a radar return. So you're not going to get a radar return on just a light spot. And I know the theory The theory you're saying I'm in agreement with. That they're not moving through the atmosphere. No, they can't. You can't move that fast. Uh, but if you're getting a radar return, there's... Well, wait, wait, wait. you might be able to with this kind of advanced technology, but you'd get one hell of a shockwave. That's right. No, that's the other thing... That's, that's problematic in these massive hyperdimensional sudden accelerations of the UAPs. The shock wave with trad- traditional propulsion behind it would destroy everything behind its path mm-hmm. because you can't suddenly accelerate to even forty to 50,000 miles an hour. And some of the, the more conservative velocities of the UAPs we're in the range of 25,000 miles an hour, which, which is too conservative for the radar data. I mean, they're, they're not doing the calculation. There's 5,280 5, feet in a mile. Just do the math. If you know how many feet per second it went divided by 5,280 feet per mile, you know how many miles per second it is. Times 60 times 60 is miles per hour. So why aren't – I mean, one of, the, one of the things that was interesting in the press is – Congress went into this whole debate in the Pentagon into whether the Chinese could be going Mach 5 with a hypersonic, you know, aircraft <laughs> when we're, we're nowhere near Mach 5. We're at Mach 281.51. And then if you go to your, your 66,000 mile an hour, which is based on the first radar data we got dropping from above 80,000 feet in 0.78 seconds is – over 66,000 miles an hour, divided by the speed of sound, 767.269, that comes to Mach 86. (laughs) So why was the press so stupid in turning this story into the Chinese and the Russians are going Mach 5 when we were going Mach 4, 5, and 6 in the X-15? And in fact, Major Bob White, this was in Time magazine, described a rectangular craft outside of his window that was the shape of a piece of paper 
and he's going mock, you know, mock four or five at least in the X-15, and there's this non-aerodynamic object outside of his window. Well, they, they had to tell him he was hallucinating because, I mean, this was in Time magazine. And you, you can't accept something that's not aerodynamic going that fast. So, again, why was the press not looking at the radar data? Now, there were two – in People magazine, it said the UAP – this was Tom DeLong reporting – the UAP dropped on the radar – from above 80,000 feet, and that's 15.1515 miles, and the 15s go forever, right? And so why why didn't they tell us, what do you mean above 80,000 feet? The radar can see way further than 15 miles. It can see over 200 miles. So they know, they know that it was coming from way above 80,000 feet. And then, again, you're getting into that noosphere region, Richard, the, the, the ignorosphere or the mesosphere. So... Then you're getting into, you know, another report that conflicted that one that said it dropped from above 80,000 feet to 20,000 feet in 0.78 seconds. Well, that's still over 40, 45,000 miles an hour. And again, your mock velocities are way beyond where the press is reporting this argument that it might be the Chinese going Mach 4 or 5. <laughs> well, either it's, either it's stupidity or it's deliberate disinformation to conceal the fact that it's ET and it's not the Chinese or the Iranians or the Russians. Yes, and they kept changing the radar data. And, and, and so that's why I wanted to get Kevin Day, the radar operator. I contacted him on Facebook and I confronted him on his own radar data statements that the UAP was doing 216,000 miles an hour because that's 60 miles in a second. And he said it himself on Netflix. So he won't answer me, and I can't get Elizondo to answer me. And I was able to get some emails from Sean Cahill, who was on the Princeton. And, 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 and Cahill sent my data to Elizondo, but didn't get an answer back for me. But, but Cahill himself was expressed that he was immensely frustrated with how the reporting wasn't taken seriously based on the data that the Navy was presenting to the Pentagon. And he, he felt like we're doing our job, but you guys are not responding properly. So we got data. We know how to do the math ourselves. We're not talking about Mach 5 here. We're, we're talking about an ability to interdimensionally jump. You can't physically push against air mass with any type of thrust propulsion and do that. You just can't do that. So we, we have to understand that this they're teaching us the language of harmonics of 432 octaves of functions of the speed of light, 144.1 and 432. And, and that's the data that, that Jimmy and I are getting in, in the messages. And plus Jimmy got the eight tones and those eight tones correspond to everything in the solar system. So I, I think we need we need some somebody serious to drop a research grant on our whole team here because you need a lot of workers. There's a lot of tasks to do here that take a lot of time. I mean, to 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 take this this language these these recordings of these chirps and slow it down, do time forward, time reverse, s slowing it down to a precise 
um, ratio and pattern where we might see what looks like language. It might be a language we don't recognize, and then you need linguistic experts to to run it against all the languages from ancient Aramaic, which is early Hebrew, to a lot of different languages on the earth um, that, that may we may see some beats. Like, you know how a language has certain beats? You know, there are certain rhythms. And one of the things we've also all detected, all of us radio users, is we detect three moods. Sometimes the radios are just going, and then they take a rest. And sometimes they're really urgent, like Jonathan was saying. Like, don't you get it, man? (laughs) And they're really excited. And they're like, they're just chatting away like crazy. And then... Sometimes they're really mellow, right? And they're, but there, there doesn't seem to be in the chirping anything that looks like the same pattern repeating itself over and over again. And so there's a lot of, there's a huge amount of analysis that has to be done on the chirps from the timing and the spacing between all the chirps, which establishes ratio. We, I mean, one of the things Richard Feynman did in The Strange Theory of Light and Matter was to determine whether the behavior of photons bouncing through multi-layered sheets of glass was erratic and non-quantifiable versus having a repeating algorithm and pattern that was quantifiable. And what he found in the end of his research is the behavior of photons going through multiple sheets of glass is it was unquantifiable, which means it behaves like human consciousness and thought patterns and language which is not quantifiable. It's erratic. Hmm. It's funny you mention that, David, because one thing I don't see when I'm out of body is glass. It just looks like it's empty space. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's strange. Glass is like a membrane, right? Our skin is a membrane. Our cells have this, you know, aqueous membrane around all of the cells, which is like a wall, right? A, A circuit. An electrical circuit has resistors, and resistors are membranes. Okay, and, 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 and let, me, let me cut to the chase here, because in terms of resources, see, I'm very cherry of giving this research, this fledgling, this little baby we've born, where we're talking directly to someone out there, and they're talking to us. I'm very, very hesitant to give this over to any official government-connected group like uh, the DOD office and or Project Galileo. Let me tell you why I bring up Project Galileo. That's the new listening effort that apparently Abby Loeb, the former director of the Harvard College Observatory, who has independently concluded that uh, Oumuamua was an artificial object, um, has been tasked now to head up at Harvard by putting prototypical gear for listening and video surveillance of UAPs slash UFOs on the top of some of the facilities at Harvard, okay? But the fact that that's allied with the official government effort makes me very hesitant to, shall we say, give our data over to their clutches. What I'd about like... the Farsight Institute or the Monroe Institute? Well, that's another possibility. But, you know, we, look, if we have the right, you know, connections and the right gear, we can do it ourselves. I'd like to keep it as independent as possible for as long as possible 
and that means independent funding. So there's a donate button on the other side of midnight. Go to it. Send us whatever you can. If you can send us a large amount, like a grant, like David's been talking about, that would be fantastic. Um, let me give you an example of what we can tap into. Um, my guest tomorrow night is Dr. Greg Matloff. He is a professor of physics and astrophysics at CUNY in New York. He couldn't come on the program earlier because he had to grade papers until Thursday. So on Friday, I announced to him that we had successfully tried to contact Oumuamua and we'd received some responses. He, of course, then emailed me back and said, can you show them to me? And I did. And he's absolutely beside himself with excitement. Remember, this is a mainstream physicist, astronomer, who is, you know, mainstream physics, speed of light, et cetera, et cetera. He is so excited and he immediately wanted to pick up the phone and call on our behalf, Abby Loeb. And I said, no, not yet. Not until we figure out independently what it is they are trying to tell us. Because then if you bring them on board and they independently confirm, that's the way science should be done. But you don't want to subsume something this nascent, this you know, raw, this new under any official program, because I guarantee you, based on the experiences of the last 75 years in this subject, it will disappear into the vast halls, kind of like that big warehouse in, uh, you know, in, in Indiana Jones. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders yeah. of the Lost Ark. So we don't want that to happen. But the fact is that with one phone call, I can get Abby Loeb this data and have him look at it I just want to do it on the appropriate coordinated time scale so we have our own data and Abby and group are looking to confirm what we already have found. That, that's, that's a good – also the John Templeton, you know, John Templeton's foundation gives huge research grants. And I actually got – before Templeton Sr. died, he contacted me personally – by phone and wanted to give me money but his son who took over his foundation wouldn't let him <laughs> and because templeton senior was was really seeing where i was going and this is many many years ago i i was nowhere near where we're at i mean three four heads together are better than one obviously and and i'm really i really see and i acknowledge richard the data that we're, we got today is in large part to you you know you know, pushing me to go further. And, and if I didn't have you pushing me in the right directions, we wouldn't have this data that we got tonight because I might just be content to just lie back and listen to birds chirping and go to sleep. <laughs> but you just designed these brilliant experiments and you've got incredible controls and you're like, you're like, do this, David, do that. And I'm like, Oh my God, you're getting me thinking now when, of course it's a lot of work and you go, you know, how can we, do this really precisely and and really focus on this you know in a daily schedule i think it's worth everything because we don't know how these ets are communicating one of the the weakest area in all ufology is communication you see these flying saucers coming in and out of the atmosphere we've got project galileo which is not on like the detectors the military has right now like we've got super radars 
they can see way out into space. And in, in, in less than a couple of seconds, they can see something coming from very far away. But they can't. And now, remember, Richard, we were talking about this on the phone this week, the real purpose of 5G. I got this call from a friend whose brother-in-law works for the new NSA in Utah. And last Christmas, he was drunk. (laughs) And he was telling him, and he told me this, I'm not allowed to give out names here, but I trust this person. He's a very high-profile person, that... They're using 5G and setting up all these repeaters everywhere because they can triangulate an actual penetrating image. So therefore, they can see a picture of you in your house doing things. But that's not what interests them. They don't want to spy on you. They notice with this new means of detection, they can see the UFOs in their interdimensional state and the ETs in their interdimensional bodies going in and out of certain buildings and certain people's houses. And this is what the guy told me. And so I found this article on MIT's website that proved that that um, 5G microwaves can... Well, it's actually millimeter waves. It's much higher yeah, well, in frequency and shorter in wavelength than microwaves. Yeah, the, the short... Yeah, a micro just means millions of, of a meter, thousands of a meter. Or, But um, no, micro is millions, yeah. So... When you get to the scale we're talking about of 5G, you're it's behaving in a way like an X-ray. I mean, it's, of course, it's not at the X-ray level, but it allows them to have these penetrating rays and 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 tons of triangulating signals to produce an optical image of the three-dimensional space around us, and they they noticed that they could see these ETs. So their whole purpose, this guy was saying when he was drunk, is to track the movement of the ETs. Remember how like you would see in the 60s or the 50s, somebody sees a UFO, and all of a sudden the men in black show up at the door, and you wonder, how did they know I saw the UFO, and why are they at my house? Because they had the same technology I'm talking about. They, they, could, they would know who the ETs are interacting with because they can see them. But one of the most terrifying hypotheses of this technology is if ETs are interested in certain humans, you know, I remember dating this woman in Los Angeles when I was very young, a, a flying saucer came right up to their house, to the window in, and in the Palisades, in the Pacific Palisades. And it was looking right at her newborn baby. I mean, right up next to the window, the flying saucer. Her dad was a super Christian mega pastor minister. who was an incredibly wealthy guy. So my point is, they seem to be interested in certain humans. And the ability of, for them to track them with 5G imaging, I call it 5G imaging technology, and that's verifiable at MIT today. I found it on the web. So wait, wait let, let, let me see if I get this straight. The idea would be in this leaker's drunken, you know, expose that mm-hmm. the reason to set up all these 5G towers radiating these millimeter frequencies all over the country, you know, masquerading as palm trees and, you know, date palms and whatever, is to basically create a 5G millimeter radiation field which then reflects off or interacts with extraterrestrials literally walking around among us 
that gives off some kind of identifiable signature, kind of like that movie They Live where you wore the special sunglasses right, and you right, saw, right. saw the beings, and then mm-hmm. they will be able to track the ETs pretending to be humans, because remember, my model, they are. They're just family. And that way they screen our society from uncensored contact with the other. Well, see, it's two things. They seem to be able to go into an invisible state where you optically can't see them. And and what, you know, one of my earliest investigation was into, it was an argument with Joseph Newth III, the head of the NASA astrochemistry branch, about the optics in NASA's cameras that could see near, far, and extreme ultraviolet photons. And that those cameras were illegal for the public to purchase because the, the military didn't want us looking into the, the far and extreme UV and, and barely into the near ultraviolet. So I remember this camera was made by Fuji. I was ready to get one at Sammy's camera in Los Angeles. It could see near and far UV and they suddenly took it off the market and they never released them to the public ever. So this new technology can see them in their invisible state where they're not physically visible to us. But yes, you're right. Once they see them popping in and out, because again, these things aren't moving at hypervelocities through our air mass. They're popping in and out. They're jumping like skipping a pebble on a pond. It's basically like beam me, beam me down, Scotty. Exactly. They can see them now. That's what this drunken NSA guy was saying mm. as of last Christmas. I get this call, and I'm like, it makes so much sense when you go back to your Men in Black stories. And I'll so, tell you what. Hold it there. We're at the top of the hour, and we have some new news on Don Ecker when we come back. This is getting kind of mysterious. And then John has an announcement, John Womack, and uh, we may be joined by uh, Maria Wheatley, it's very early, early morning over in Britain, but I want to lay all the Stonehenge stuff on her and, and see how she responds. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and this is from Rogers and Hart. standing alone Without a dream in my heart Without a love of my own Blue moon, you knew just what I was there for. You heard me sing in the prayer for someone I really do care for. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio 
with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Without a love of my own. And welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night, now Sunday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight. The night we have reached out to the moon, bounced signals off it, bathed the entire Earth in those signals, and we'll get to why that could be really interesting in a couple of minutes. Um, let me update you on what's happened to Don Ecker. We don't know. He disappeared from Skype. His phone goes directly to voicemail. We cannot reach him. I've known him for a very long time. I wanted him to kind of, you know, look over what we're doing against the context of the government suddenly saying officially, UFOs are real. And, you know, fear not. We will tell you exactly what they mean and who they are and where they're from. And, uh, I'd like to have other voices, but uh, we're, I guess we're not going to have Don tonight because he has literally disappeared off our own radar. Very curious. Okay, back to our guest. John, I think it's time to introduce you to introduce something special regarding next weekend. Take it away. Well, I believe you're referring to the trailer I made for next weekend. Yes, um, a couple of weeks ago when we started this, I thought, boy, this really deserves a full-blown trailer. We need some press. We need some TV news airtime kind of thing. And so I put together a draft and I I used the other side of midnight AI voice, you know, our commercial voice there for the first half of the trailer. And I narrated the second half, but I, I just had this strong notion that Maria Wheatley, I just saw her on the panel of guests whenever I thought of her um, for these shows. And I didn't know how she fit in. And I thought, well, I'll ask her if she wants to narrate the video, and she was happy to do that. So you can, uh, that's my item number one. You can watch that trailer there. Well, why don't I play the soundtrack? Because everybody can watch it, and we're going to be posting it tonight. I don't know whether Kinti has already put it on the main page, but it will be there for the next week, advertising our broadcasts on Christmas Eve, on Christmas Day, Christmas night, and uh, the night after Christmas. Uh, we will not be on the air on Christmas Eve during the broadcast. Uh, the other side of the news will be. But we will talk about what results we get uh, on uh, Christmas night. And given the surprises that have been thrown at us so far by whoever we are obviously in communication with, uh, almost anything can happen. So let me play what John uh, Womack produced as a trailer for our Christmas weekend of a Muamua and Lunar Communications. (laughs) 
Pronounce into darkness. It entered the soul system. Speeding past planets and asteroids as it headed for the light. Solitary visitor from another star. Bearing silent witness to the cosmic tinkerings of humankind. After basking in the life-giving rays of the sun, it turned away, continuing on its trajectory in ageless solitude as it has for untold eons, leaving behind a tantalizing trail of clues. The questions remain. How old is it? Where did it come from? What is its makeup? Is it self-propelled? Is it hollow? Where is it going? Is it simply a rock? Or could it be an ancient spacecraft? An ET probe? A leftover artifact from a previous advanced civilization? What if we tried communicating with it? Develop a mathematical coded message and via radio waves beam that message at the speed of light directly to the coordinates of the anomaly. Would anyone hear it? Would anyone respond? Host and lead researcher Richard C. Hoagland welcomes David Sarida, Jimmy Blanchett, and special guests for a show unlike any other. for a groundbreaking weekend of discovery. Calling on Oumuamua, a two-night global radio event, Saturday and Sunday nights, December the 25th and 26th, 2021. Only on TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com John, I am rarely speechless. I am <laughs> speechless. <laughs> you have you, outdone you. yourself. Thank you. And I'm doing a show with Maria. Uh, the working title is Sacred Spaces. And um, just from having her on the show when Michael Lee Hill was on with us a few weeks ago, she said she made a discovery regarding Stonehenge and a relationship to an Ohio mound, which we were talking about with Michael. 
And so the cool thing is we will, uh, we're just starting on this. The sets are built. She's written the script, um, start filming in January and we're looking at a June final cut date. But um, all this recent uh, information will be incorporated into that, like the 54 holes and, and anything we discover. 56, 56. Uh, 56. Um, and she has, you know, she's very mum. She just reminds me to be mum about some of this stuff. But um, <laughs> she's made some discoveries that no one else has. And we're going to, I have a lot of model extruding to do, and it's going to be a lot of, a lot of work involved, but it's going to be very cool and uh, a really great show with lots of uh, fascinating research and yeah. And 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 when is this going to air, or do you know yet? Well, it would. Uh, she'll be showing it. She's already got some um, conventions lined up, like the U, what's the big UFO conference every year? Contact in the desert and there's others in England. So she's already lined up some showings of this. And I will also have this, um, I'll be distributing the show on UFO TV and Gaia and these sort, sort of platforms where you can watch it. Wow, that sounds really intriguing. Very yeah. intriguing. So she's made some kind of major discovery Gosh, I wonder if she'll give her a hint tonight if she can come on. Again, uh, it occurred to me just kind of this evening as we're getting this amazing connection to Stonehenge in this extraterrestrial conversation that we're opening that the perfect person to have on. I mean, the last thing I expected was they would talk to us about Stonehenge. Um, gosh knows what we're going to find buried in this data if we get the right resources. So again, if you want to donate to this project, if you want to maintain an independent voice that apparently is talking directly to somebody out there and getting very meaningful answers, just, you know, hit that donate button, go to the top of the other side of midnight page, send us anything you can. Uh, it's uh, it, every little bit helps. You know, there's no such thing as too little. Uh, if you have a lot of little, you know, donations, you have a big donation. So it's, uh, it's all, you know, part of where we're trying to go, which is to be a counterpoint, a countervailing voice to an official governmental decree that, okay, this is what reality is regarding extraterrestrials and take it or leave it. Well, I'm not willing to take it or leave it. I want to have independent confirmation. And obviously we're talking to the source. So we now have to have the resources to figure out what the source is telling us. Yeah, I was thinking, Richard, that, say, in a perfect world, you would be at Stonehenge with the Accutron when these chirps came in. Oh, my, my, and my, my. we would see some kind of effect on, like Maria says, Stonehenge is, it's living alchemy that effect, when you're there, in that aura of this living alchemy, it affects you. And I, I wonder if Well, when chirps... Robin and I visited Stonehenge, <clears throat> and we had just come from visiting uh, Roslyn Chapel, where we got extraordinary readings on the Accutron. And for those that haven't followed our work, the Accutron is literally the commercial bull of the Accutron watch that was brought out in 1965 as a breakthrough in 300 years of timekeeping, in that instead of having a balance wheel and a wind-up and, you know, 
pendulums or uh, some kind of, you know, let's say batteries working on, on electric motors, it had a, a frequency regulator based on a tuning fork that vibrated at 360 hyperdimensional cycles per second. That's not an, av- that's not an accident. The reason we divide a circle into 360 degrees, part of the 360-60-60 system, which shows up in the diameter of the moon, in the ratios of the inner and outer circles of Stonehenge, in, um, in the Giza Plateau, all of these sacred sites. It's like everybody in ancient times knew all this stuff, and we're dumb because we've been kept dumb. Anyway, Robin and I went from Roslyn Chapel, which has extraordinary secrets, and I got some astonishing measurements there. We went to Stonehenge, and I literally was getting in the rain, crouching on that little you know, asphalt uh, walkway they have kind of beside the, the, the center of the monument, and I begged the, uh, the, 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 the cops wearing the yellow slickers working for English Heritage to let me walk 20 feet from the walkway into the center of Stonehenge to do the measurements, and they refused. And they could see we were getting results, totally non-destructive. I mean, I wasn't doing anything, but literally with a laptop detecting and recording changes in the vibration of the tuning fork. And the reason the tuning fork changed vibration is because the field, the changing inertial field of, of the torsion literally changes the mass and inertia of rotating and vibrating objects, which, by the way, going back to um, how we're getting these signals on these special radios, David, maybe you want to take some of the, the, the explanation of that, because whatever we're getting, it's not normal radio frequency reception on a radio. It appears to be modulated hyperdimensional torsion field frequencies that are physically taking control of the speaker in the radio and vibrating it kind of like a Star Trek, uh, um, you know, um, uh, tractor beam. Yeah, because we can't see, at least with the meters I have, up to eight, up to, you know, six or eight gigahertz, um, the incoming radio frequency is non-detectable. Yet if we take the antenna off, it stops. And there, then I tried attaching a, what's truly a hyperdimensional coil, which has a wave within a wave structure. And I, I found there was much better resolution in the chirping. So what I have to do is try attaching this particular radio to um, some very, very sophisticated vortex um, coils that I make as an antenna to see if I can improve my resolution on my chirping. And and the first test I did today, I at least what I thought I was hearing was better resolution of those chirps. And that and that tells me a lot. So, you know, antennas have really evolved over the centuries and the decades. I mean, there's a movie called um, Fractals Hunting the Hidden Dimensions that talks about how you know, fractal-based mathematics led to the most sophisticated antennas in the history of the world for, for detecting multiple frequency bands on the same antenna. Whereas, in, you know, in the old days, when you use monopole and dipole antennas, 
you're, you're very limited to the octaves of the function based on the length. Because a typical, like a dipole antenna, the height of the antenna times two is the wavelength. So you take the speed of light in the same unit of measure as you measured your antenna and its wavelength, and you get your frequency. So speed of light divided by wavelength is frequency. And and a monopole, the wavelength is times four. So that means the dipole and a monopole are one octave apart times two. That's so it's really perfect that they function with a with a traditional musical octave. But when you get into more advanced antennas, hyperdimensional geometric antennas, like you're saying, Richard, when you get your radio near this pyramid, which is non-metallic, um, your radio is going crazy and when you take it out of the pyramid then it, it slows up until down. i mean jimmy sent it to me last week it took me across the weekend because i was busy doing other things to focus on the the instruction manual and i charged the lithium-ion battery put it together with the radio uh held the radio in my hand stood in the living room with this big um you know stick pyramid like a russian very tall steeple type pyramid sitting in the corner of the living room made out of PVC, which is painted black. And I've got experiments going on inside. I've got some crystals. I've tried various plants. You know, I've done some other things and I'm holding the radio in my hand and I just turned it on and it went nuts and it hasn't stopped until tonight on 14 on one, you know, 14, 144.1 megahertz. I haven't touched anything. I haven't changed the frequency. I haven't looked at the squelch. I haven't altered anything until I can record what this radio literally out of the box is doing. Because the first thing I said to Jimmy was, did you, did you broadcast on it to acclimate it to these frequencies and this communication? And he said, no. It's right out of the box. Which means... Unlike your radios, David, and Jimmy's, I didn't have to do anything. I just took it outside, out, out of the box, and held it, and it began to, to chirp. And the chirps go up and down. Some days it's more. Some days it's less. Some days it's like almost like a Geiger counter background where it's just you know chirping every few seconds just to kind of let me know it's alive. <clears throat> and I put it in the pyramid on a, on a, on a wooden you know, table. Um, and it trips away until tonight when we broadcast to the moon, when Blanchard turned on his antenna and we sent half a million effective watts to the moon. Suddenly, my little, you know, whatever the, the, the name is, Bao, Bao Gran or Baojun radio, the same one you're using, same one Jimmy's Baofeng. using. It's Baofeng. And it's Baofeng, um... okay. It went silent. Nothing, absolutely nothing for the 15 minutes of the transmission of Jimmy's antenna to the moon. It's like somebody was listening and asked everybody else on the same channel to shut up and be quiet so that they could listen to what we were sending. And then after the transmission stopped, it kind of came back up to the kind of random background but it turns out that the real action was not at 14,1404.1. It was over at 432 megahertz because that's a multiple of the literal diameter 
of the moon and all of these nested hyperspatial frequencies. So that's where the action was, and that's where they sent us this repeating code, you know, 144.156. What's interesting, I'm looking at data on Stonehenge right now, and and I was looking for Alexander Thom, by the way, Alexander Tom. And so... Yeah, the megalithic yard guy. It says, yeah, the megalithic yard guy. Yeah, I went, I went so deep into the megalithic yard years ago. I did a huge study on it, and boy, I calculated an amazing frequency on a wavelength of the megalithic yard. But what I'm looking at right now shows the inner circle 108 feet across diameter. And, of course, 108 feet is an 432, yep. right? Because 108 times 2 is your 216 times 2 again is 432. Yep, 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 yep. So, we were brought to Stonehenge tonight. And so because I was given a frequency divided by the 144.1 gave me exactly 56 with no leftover decimals. So Which again, means- according to Fred Hoyle, was how the ancients who built Stonehenge literally tracked the moon day by day by day by moving the stones from from hole to hole to hole for every uh, two holes per day to give us the 28-day lunar revolution period around the earth somebody wanted us to connect all these dots and they're not somebody on this planet well um, that's what's amazing you take 56 divided by two you get 28 and again that's an octave so so they're in this paper i read that was actually published at harvard they couldn't understand the purpose of the 56 holes and of course we just figured it out it's a function of two to that 28. So it does have to do with the moon. And we sent the signal to the moon. So the moon is sending us back to Stonehenge about the moon tonight. So again, there's somebody on the other end of the line, folks. I mean, you, it's undeniable that somebody's on the other end of the line here on these. And these particular radios may be the only ones that can do this, by the way. Um, and again, here we go. A 108-foot diameter circle is a function of 432. So we've got 56 is an octave of the 28, and the 108 is an octave of the 432 inside of Stonehenge. So we're seeing this same functional numbers again. So there, there's lots of work to do here. I mean, there sometimes somebody's life purpose is just to collect the numbers and the data, and they don't really know what they mean. It's funny to read a paper on Stonehenge by Harvard astronomers, and they don't know what the 56 holes are for, mm. and, and, and that's because their minds don't work like this. They don't Richard, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Go, ahead. Go, go ahead. Richard, do you see any scenario where this might be coming from the breakaways? I don't see the breakaways, which, by the way, are Nazis removed from the Earth and inhabiting somewhere in space colonizing ancient ruins out there. I don't see them giving us tutorials in hyperdimensional physics. By their signature, thou shall know them. Is that that a biblical quote, David? If it isn't, it should be. Um, I think the folks that are trying to teach us something are good guys, because otherwise, why would they give us the keys to liberating the human species, which is to control open source hyperdimensional physics and technology? Remember, the bad guys want to keep it secret, so they use it for themselves to control all the rest of us. Whoever is at the other end of the phone, you know, beginning on December 4th, 
are trying to unveil the real physics which will you know energize the human species to return to what we used to be which is a conscious high level you know um, kardashev maybe class one or class two civilization that knows how to use this physics and knowledge for the benefit of all humankind no i don't think they're the breakaways yeah i agree I, with you there, agree, this, this yeah. is too harmonic here jonathan it's um yes yeah. once you understand when your nervous system experiences a true harmony you go into a higher state of awareness field and that's what they're teaching us how to do with radio frequency as harmony and we need to do the same thing with all the microwave towers on the planet that are not running on harmonics i mean we could make all these microwaves i actually believe the global warming has nothing to do with the, the current weather patterns i think it's it's in tandem with the arrival and the increase in amplitude of the microwave tower activity that's causing the disruption of the the natural currents of the weather like the extreme heat we had in canada where i am this this last summer was enough to almost decimate and eradicate our our forest completely the the trees were almost completely dead and then we got massive severe flooding and we were underwater in british columbia and not to mention you know everything happening everywhere else on the planet it it has nothing to do with global warming it, it has to do with the microwave towers and you could do a graph chart showing the arrival of these towers and and the amplitude of their signal and the frequent it, it's not even so much about of course microwaves are not harmful if they're harmonics because we have the cosmic microwave background radiation in the entire universe it has to do with whether they're they're established in a harmony field or a chaotic field and if you have chaos in your in your microwave tower field your collective communication field then that's going to disrupt your weather patterns because they're going to be no longer in the natural harmony of of the planet and the universe I brought up the breakaways just as a way to eliminate if, if people out there are wondering that this could be caused by something other than uh, a conscious entity replying, let's say, um, you know, a break, that could be one thing. I, I don't think so, but I just want to eliminate some of these other possibilities so people understand that this is really what we are hearing and not something from breakaways or it's not some reflected noise off a tower. We're really hearing something. Well, uh, Greg Matloff is, is no dummy. And I, I sent him the data that we had up until last night, which was basically from the December 4th, uh, uh, you know, session and the, somewhat minimal decoding we've done so far and he got so excited i mean he immediately wanted to uh, share it with abby Loeb, which tells me that when we know what we're talking about that line of communication will be open but i don't want to open those frequencies until we know what we're talking about which means we have to have our own independent research effort with the right experts the right computer algorithms the right machine technology and that all costs money. So if you want to help this effort along, donating to the Enterprise Mission and to the other side of midnight right now is the thing you probably should be doing. 
Okay, let's hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Here's something that's kind of out, out of memory lane. Let's see if you remember this. It must have been Moonglow Way up in the blue Must have been Moonglow That led me straight to you I still hear you saying Dear one, hold me fast And I start in praying Oh Lord, please let this last The other side is midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Way up in the blue I'll always remember That moon glow gave me you And welcome back everyone on this Saturday night, Sunday morning now. On the other side of midnight, my guests this morning are Ron Gerbron and Dave Sarita. And John Womack, we lost Don Ecker. He disappeared into the ether. Nothing will answer. None of his communications devices. And I don't know whether Maria is sleeping in. She hasn't checked her computer. So she doesn't know we have this amazing new lunar Stonehenge connection to bounce off her and see what her thoughts are. But uh, we still have half an hour in the show. So if she joins us, we will patch her in and uh, we will get her reaction. David, I would like to go back to you because for the first time tonight, what we did is we took these Amuamua packages, these very complex structured codes and pictograms and forms that we set up for Amuamua, and we sent them to the moon, and they bounced off like a spherical reflector, and for the first time ever, they bathed the entire Earth with all those sacred sites in literally... Moon glow, hyperdimensional, appropriate, structured, coded frequency, moon glow. And one of those sites, not all that ancient, is the Washington Monument in downtown Washington, D.C. So 
tell me again and the audience why this could be the most important object to resonate to our transmissions tonight. Antennas that the monument as well as the staff of Moses and Jesus and the apostles are a monopole antenna. And a monopole either receives negative or transmits positive. It doesn't do both at the same time. You have to switch it. So the, the formula on the monument to calculate its frequency is the height of the monument times four. And so you take the 555 feet plus 5.125 inches is very important not 555 feet, 555 feet, 5.125 inches times four is almost exactly 2,222 feet. It's a smidgen under that as a wavelength. So when I calculated its, its frequency and divided it by 11 octaves, I arrived at 432.3 and three. And that meant this is yet again another 432-octave tuner because a monopole antenna will work functionally at any of its interval octaves, whereas if you're not within an octave, it, it won't work very well at all. You'll have a lot of static and distortion. So that means the monument was a 432-tuner, and the moment it was being erected, suddenly the birth of every major invention in the history of the world emerges. Radio, alternating current, remote control, solar. I mean, everything happened within a certain radius of the monument. We like there about. had been a sudden amplification of consciousness in the United States and the North American Craton. And the elevated consciousness produced a stunning series of world-changing, world-shattering inventions but only here they then migrated here. like tesla came from the former yugoslavia to work for edison and he was within this harmonic radius of the monument as the monument's coming into completion so it's really remarkable when you see this you see how powerful frequency and harmonic is on consciousness because you can go to australia you can go to new zealand you can go anywhere you want in the world and nobody did it first it all happened first there within this certain wavelength radius of the monument transmitting this monopole 432 octave frequency bands into the upper eastern atlantic and all these inventions they were all born there first then the patents distributed across the planet and then people started having you know uh, the ripple you call the ripple effect where where once an invention comes into being, everybody starts modifying it and having another realization, another realization. But why, I always ask myself, what was the impetus? What caused it to all happen there first? And of course, this is, is an Egyptian-style obelisk, and, and some people have actually come up with this theory that somehow the Washington Monument is evil. And I beg you what? to look at what? Yeah, th there's crazy theories like Who that. Who in the world has that cockamamie so idea? Tell me, for those people, do you know that? Do they know the history that America is the first free country 
where the people were freed from the, the servitude and slavery under the Roman Empire, the Turkish Ottoman Empire, the British Empire. And so finally, this concept of freedom is born when George Washington has this incredible vision on the battlefield. And then the monument, the monument secret is right on the lawn. The Vesca Pisces is right on the lawn. So if you inscribe two circles whose diameter is the height or the diameter of the height of the Washington Monument, the Vesca Pisces that forms in the middle of the two circles. You remember, look on the lawn, you're going to see the Vesca Pisces um, design on the grass on the lawn underneath the monument. So when you take the monument's height, 555.427 feet is what it comes to, times um, or divided by 1.866110623382, which is the ratio of a circle diameter to the Vesca Pisces diameter that will form. The height of that Vesca Pisces is the finished height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt. So that means the monument is the mother diameter that gave birth to the, the height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt. I mean, how perfect is that mathematics? And the fact that the monument's height, which is the mother to, to the height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, would produce a 432 octave is even more remarkable. David, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, I wanted to add that um, in my most recent novel, Ram I Am, Ram is the out-of-body superhero, and he's fighting this villain, Torque, and, uh, who has these torsion powers. He can control uh, torsion fields. and So there's, there's a big battle scene. I don't want to give too much away, but there's a big battle scene. It's called the Battle of D.C. It takes place in D.C. Oh, oh wow. Torque has re-energized. See, see, he believes Washington built Washington, D.C. That was the answer to the Kaaba engine that is the most sacred place to the Muslims. That's a torsion field amplifier. Well, yeah, because uh, it's, a, it's a big black cube, and a cube is nothing but two interlocked tetrahedrons. By yes, the way, uh, a, a little digression, sorry. didn't one of the pilots on the East Coast around the uh, um, um, uh, Roosevelt battle group, the aircraft carrier uh, Teddy Roosevelt, didn't those pilots see at close range uh, these UAPs, and they all seem to have a cube around a sphere geometry yeah that was lieutenant ryan graves on the atlantic that was his optical description of seeing it with his own eyes i we really need to to get an interview with him well we've only yeah, begun so this, I, this process uh, excuse me richard yes john and company i'm sorry uh i got cut off again earlier you didn't even know it so that's all right the uh about the washington monument uh, the 500, and I think this adds something or takes it away. I don't know. Uh, that height of 555 feet, I had never point, seen the decimal. Point, point part. four two seven. Five point four. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, wasn't in my source, uh, but it makes sense. Uh, that was determined long after the designer of the uh, monument was dead. Uh, yeah, and it's amazing it, how it came to be. You're right. It's yeah, it's supposed to be 600 feet. That was right. what he wrote down. It's incredible yeah. because when it comes to the feet, the height that it finally came to, 
Okay, so it's being completed between 1848 and 1884. And you're right, there was a dispute about its final height. How did it? Well, it was, it was cost because he had that. He wanted to put 100 uh, marble cylinders in a in a ring around it. That was part of the design, and they decided that they couldn't afford that. <clears throat> Post war, mutter mutter, you know. Sorry. Edison invents the phonograph 1877. So you're right near the completion of the monument. Bell invents the telephone in 1877. Edison invents light bulbs in 1879. You're so close to the completion. Tesla invents AC and, De- and Edison invents DC in 1882. You're only like it's almost completed. You see Edison and Dickinson motion picture 1888. That's after the completion. Tesla invents radio 1893, which just a few years after the monument was completed. Lodge invents the EMF tuning circuit 1894, which is again only 10 years after the monument is finally completed. Tesla invents remote control 1898. Farnsworth invents TV 1922. Vladimir Zorkin invents the cathode ray 1977. And imagine if... We Bell can. Labs ostensibly invents the transistor in the 1950s. Yes. Well, Bell Labs, it's, it's, it's Bratton, Shockley, and Bardeen who invents the transistor at Bell Labs. And Carl Jansky invents radio astronomy at Bell Labs, the Wright brothers of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. It's all there. Okay, in- we don't have a lot of time, so let me truncate this. When you laid this on us a couple of weeks ago, I had this epiphany that if the Washington Monument was designed as a hyperdimensional amplifier to basically raise the consciousness of this, you know, American experiment, this, this unique thing that we're in danger tonight of losing forever, and that's a whole other program, then what might have happened over the last five years is something basically turned the squelch all the way up to shut it down. And what could that have been? In 2011, there was an earthquake. And from 2011 to 2014, the Washington Monument was shut down along with the National Cathedral to repair it. My theory was, did someone place something inside the monument to basically cancel its consciousness-enhancing properties so the country, subsequent to that lack of that field, that amplification, is going to hell in a handbasket? And so, as part of our second transmission's to Amua last Saturday night and part of the transmissions to the moon tonight, we specifically ask those folks out there that we're talking to to fix the monument, to change the atmosphere, the hyperdimensional field to restore the resonance so it can function as it's demonstrably functioned from the historical record from the time it was completed till 2011. And we have to watch and see if we see any visible effects. But I'm wondering if those codes that you recorded tonight after the moon bounce, David, that mm-hmm. we're going to find a bunch of five, five, fives. Well, I've got to do, okay, I've got to do a lot of those because I have recordings of the response tonight and I can run my frequency meter against those recordings. Yep. yep. Just takes a lot of time and effort, but I think it's worth it. Yeah, it's it's worth it for sure. And you know, one of the one of the arguments, I mean, 
it's interesting about the 555. But the, the fact of the matter is the monument's diameter, Vesca Pisces, which, again, if you look at the, the feature on the lawn, it's the, the monument sitting in the middle of Vesca Pisces. So you have to be flying over in an airplane or looking down on a satellite image to see that, right? right? To see that. But that's telling you whoever made the lawn feature knows that the Vesca Pisces formed out of the diameter of two circles, the monument, is the finished height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt to perfection. So, again, the argument about how it came to its final height is remarkable. It's like it was – was it intuitive? Did, did, Did the Masons who 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 finished its final height no did they know it was a 432 octave tuner it's it's so mysterious to me because you're talking about perfection here this is perfection the to see i mean i have all the graphics on my website davidsradio.co forward slash washington you can see all the graphics and all the work i did on this and so then what we transmitted were all the washington monument octaves coming up to its its um, final frequency, which is a high A note, actually, because 432 is, is middle A, so it's it's a high A note well, at the top. David, it even is weirder than that. <clears throat> if you all look at the number 12 in my items, radio with pictures, mm-hmm. there's a beautiful perspective shot across the Memorial Bridge to the Lincoln Memorial and then the Capitol and then the Washington Monument standing up, you know, between the two with the moon, full moon off to the left. That monument, I mean, all that Greco-Roman architecture is classic Egyptian. What the hell is it doing in the middle of Washington, D.C. when the original plan looked nothing like it? How does it wind up being that kind of a hyperdimensional beacon in the middle of the capital of the new Atlantis this experiment in freedom and democracy on the planet. I think we're Richard? missing the, the human element oh. where uh, the Kaaba engine, you go in there, the Muslims go inside and they circle the cube and they pray. So what's happening? And they there? chant. Are, Don't forget the chanting. And they chant. Yes. Okay. Ron, so was that you? Sound, thoughts. If yeah. you had people circling the Washington Monument, you would increase the power. Wouldn't that be interesting? Set. Hey, I love that idea, Jonathan. And you know what else? We could transmit, if you stand one wavelength away from the Washington Monument, which is 2,222 feet, just less a smidgen than that, then you're one, monu- you're one wavelength away from it. And then if you stand in a circle and you... You, 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 we should do an event, a peaceful event. Yeah, that's about a half a mile. Hey, Ron, you got to be more aggressive. Uh, yeah, well, I know, but I've just been letting things flow. And usually you were, you say the th- same thing I was about to jump in and say. <laughs> uh, but I'm still, I'm still fixated on a couple of things. We can let the one go, but the other is the Washington Monument. And how does it produce whatever it's producing? Is it a, or is it a transducer? And I got it would be powered by the Schumann resonance because the what human resonance? No, 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 Schumann, Schumann. Schumann. Oh, Schumann. I'm sorry. Now, uh, hang on, hang on, David, David, David. David, Hang on, hang on. I got to get this in. I actually went and looked up a very important piece of data in terms of how would this monument be powered, given its height 
and given the measured electric field change per meter of altitude, it turns out that there's about a 40,000 volt difference between the base and the apex of the Washington Monument on an average day. And it fluctuates, it varies. I've got a, a, a graphic, which I couldn't post tonight, which literally shows a double spiral torsion wave emanating from the apex of a pyramid, like the Pyramidion that they put on top of the monument made out of aluminum, yes. <clears throat> which, which well, all they did was electrify this pyramid and above it appears this incredible double um, helix wave extending up to infinity above the pyramid. The same thing is happening invisibly over the Washington Monument because of natural background electricity in the atmosphere and the voltage difference between the top and the bottom of about 40,000 volts. Okay. Uh, point of order, I think that the Pyramidian and the other little plaque at the top are made out of copper. No, no, aluminum. It was the only piece of aluminum fashioned into an object back in the 1800s when they finished it. Aluminum was incredibly hard to manufacture them. Tesla yeah. creates his first massive invention upon the completion of the monument, like and Edison as well. I mean, it's, and then radio and the light bulb. I mean, all of it, the automobile. It all suddenly starts happening, and nothing in in a period of of even thirty years before the monument. There's really little going on technologically. We're using candles. We don't have light bulbs. I mean, ben, you have Benjamin Franklin, you know, getting with his kite experiment, you know, and the electricity. And, and it went nowhere, did it? It went nowhere. But see, suddenly that thing goes up. So you got to go to the book of Psalms 1919 and you see that the God, the God of the prophets tells them to put a pillar to the Lord God on the border of the land of Egypt. And the pillars are the, the, the obelisk. In fact, if you go inside your pyramid and you measure your king and queen's chamber, the, the, queen's, the queen's chamber is 10 by 10 royal cubits. And that would be the same as the, the tabernacle of Moses was 10 by 10 cubits. And we know from the book of Ezekiel, God says to use a cubit plus a hand, which is the royal cubits. And then if you go to the king's chamber, it's 10 by 20 cubits, which is the holy place at the time of Moses, the, the, the extending beyond the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, you had the holy place, which is 10 by 20. That's the measurement of the king's chamber using the, the long cubit. So that means without any Egyptian um, hieroglyphs inside of the pyramid when it was first opened up, it's not an Egyptian monument at all. And it's the fact that the Washington Monument inscribes two circles whose Vesca Pisces is the finished height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt is is so phenomenal. <laughs> it's so incredibly a phenomenal. A code within a code within a code within a code. A code within a code within a code. And, and we're all tuning back to 432 harmonics. It's that 432 octaves that caused the the awakening of the scientific mind in in, in modern civilization. And tonight, as opposition to every other experiment you've done and the ones we did two weeks ago, the 144.1 radio was kind of just silent, and the 432 tuned radio went nuts. 
when we broadcast. My 432 radio was going nuts. And remember, the 432 times 10 to the fifth divided by the 144.1 is the speed of light in metric, 299, 792, you know, 458. It's it's right there. Which they sent us back as a code tonight. And which they sent us back as a code. Again, we... you saw it on my meter. We, we've got it in my items up there. The speed of light, and with the decimal moved over, because that's a function of the speed of light, is they sent it back to us as a frequency on my 432 radio when okay. it was going crazy. Okay, let me, so, let me little do a bit of on-air on live programming here. Uh, Maria obviously did not get any messages, which, you know, if you want to look at this as the great producer, she wasn't supposed to be on tonight. You can subscribe to that if you want. Okay. Don, I have no idea what happened to Don. Um, I'm, I'm suspecting that they did not, whoever they are, did not want Don Ecker's perspective on what we're doing and how it relates to the DOD, et cetera, et cetera. So I will try to book him for maybe the weekend after this coming Christmas weekend. In terms of tomorrow night, I've got Greg Matloff on. We're going to be talking about the Webb Space Telescope Revolution because they're going to launch her. Now, guess what, guys? They've delayed the launch to launch her Christmas Eve in the same window, the same hyperdimensional window we calculated for when we need to send these signals to Oumuamua, and we did the test two weeks ago to see if it would work. Okay. He is also going to talk about a field of research he's been pursuing for some years now, literally the stars like the huge whirling balls of plasma that we call the sun and Sirius and Aldebaran and Betelgeuse and all that, that stars actually could be conscious beings. And he has some brand new evidence in support of that extraordinary possibility. Number three, he wants to talk about Oumuamua. He's got some ideas about Oumuamua. What I'd like to do, David, is to have you... Look at these frequencies, you know, get some rest tonight, pick it up in the morning, work out more ratios and translations. And if you come up with something really significant, I'll bring you on in the first half hour and we'll use that as an entree to Greg's discussion for the evening. Oh, yeah, I can't wait to hear what he has to say about. Can I add something, Richard? Yes, John, of course. Yes, you're right about the uh, the suns being alive, and you can see that at the heart of our own galaxy, and any other galaxy for that matter, because these black stars evolve. They are just like we are evolving. They are sentient beings that evolve into white holes, white stars. They they After a time, they turn into white stars, so you can... Look up, there are animations uh, on YouTube available where you can see this evolution from black stars into white stars. Hmm. Well, we'll put that together with what Greg is coming up with. And uh, again, he is our window to Abbey Loeb when we're ready. So I'm, I'm very impressed because I kind of hit him with this out of the blue. And instead of being the normal knee-jerk mainstream guy going, oh, I don't want to talk about that. He's really interested in the data, and obviously the more we can produce and funnel to him, the more he can bring in more colleagues, and we may develop an appropriate counterforce to the official DOD. This is what we're dealing with, because frankly, 
I would not trust the government to interpret anything out there given their known documented history in this field. Does anybody have an opinion on the change in the design on the uh, Washington Monument? Like, they, if you read the page on, pages on it on the Park Service website, it's I, it's fascinating. It's like a it's like a mystery novel. Uh, but the uh, yeah, it was designed with a ring of a hundred tall uh, white marble cylinders around it, and I don't know why. That sounds kind of hideous to me. But um, if it had some fight, if it had some hyperdimensional, are they adding those to it in the future, or is it something they never did? No, no, it's something they That's never something did. They never did. The original design it was to be six hundred precisely, six hundred feet high, high at the tip of the point, and yeah, uh, nothing. Oh, yeah. And it would have had this ring of a hundred cylinders around it, and it was paint. It was supposed to be painted, as of course the pyramids actually once were. But it was supposed to have designs and things all over it. All all and the plans I've seen for the monument compared to what we've got are hideous. What we got is something simple, elegant, and incredibly meaningful in terms of the physics. So it is the Masons. Yeah, I think so. Well, you know, they have a tradition, or at least something I read about. Yeah, uh, they had, or well, Pike at least uh, is credited with having uh, radio communications back in like the 1870s. I don't know if anybody else with has heard whom? anything. And we're running out of well, time. We got 15 seconds. Whoever else, yeah, whatever other dark cabal they were okay. working with, I don't know. But I mean, the point is, the technology was possibly already discovered and hidden 50 years earlier than people think. Hmm. Well, gentlemen, I hate to say it, but we are out of runway this evening. My guests this morning have been David Sarita, Ron Gerbron, John Womack, and um, uh, who am I forgetting? Uh, I'm, I'm blanking. I'm blanking. Um, of course, Keith Morgan's in the background, and uh, 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 my mind is going... See, uh, Don Ecker, but he was not here. So, you know, he was supposed to be, but something prevented it. Tomorrow morning, we're going to continue this conversation if David comes up with something intriguing. Until then, remember, third star on the left, straight until morning. Good night, everyone. And look at the full moon. It said hi tonight. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.